This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 11. Lord willing, we will conclude our study of Ecclesiastes next Sunday, and then following uh, through Christmas, look at some Christmas-related themes. Well, let's give our attention now to Ecclesiastes, chapter 11, verse 1. Cast your bread upon the waters... For you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow. And he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who made everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body for youth And the dawn of life are vanity. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word this morning with expectation because your word is living and active. And Father, we pray that you would minister to us by your spirit through your word this morning. For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Do you live life timidly? Do you frequently suffer from analysis, paralysis? Do you live life tentatively? Your decisions, your outlook, controlled more by fear of what you might lose than the prospect of what you might gain. Many of us, out of fear, live half-heartedly. Even if something good happens, we're waiting for the other shoe to drop. We're convinced that the glass is half full and probably, or half empty and and probably leaking. And we also see the light at the end of the tunnel as the inevitable oncoming train. Some of that is temperament. Some of that comes through experience. But for whatever reason, it tends to sound like this. We'll get married when we can afford it. We'll have children when we can afford them. Ha <laughs> I'd love to change jobs, but I'd love to do something different, but I'd love to go back to school, 
But, and there's always a reason why not. And so we trudge on in a fearful twilight through a swirling mist of mediocrity. One writer puts it this way. He says, the habit of always putting off an experience until you can afford it and until the time is right or until you know how to do it is one of the greatest burglars of joy. Be deliberate, but once you've made up your mind, jump in. Now, I know what some of you are thinking right now. You're thinking, it's finally happened. Johnson's flipped, and he's become uh, a power of positive thinking. Preacher, we, we knew it was inevitable. No, no. Well, not positive thinking, certainly not the power of positive thinking, but positive living. And I'm in good company here. Uh, my friend Jonathan Edwards, who was the great preacher and theologian of colonial America, wrote in his blog, or journal, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> resolved that I will live with all of my might while I do live. And Edwards, of course, was as sound and sober a man as you will find, and yet early on in his life, he made it a resolution of his that he would live with all his might. In other words, he would live his life to the full. He would commit to it 100%. He would throw everything he had into it as long as he was alive to make his life count, to get the most out of it that he could. Well, not only Edwards, but the text that is before us this morning is about that theme as well. Living with all our might for all the days that God gives us on this earth. And as you look through the text, in some ways it's similar to chapter 10 in, in, in being a series of Proverbs. But again, uh, after a second or third reading, you start to see some connections, some similarities between them that, that group them together. And uh, as we look at the text, we want to look particularly at five attitudes that are held by people, and certainly from the text here, held by those who would live their lives wholeheartedly. Five attitudes. First of all, there is an attitude of boldness in the face of risk. Verses 1 through 4 point us to this. First of all, verse 1, uh, in the whole matter of, uh, of business or, or giving. This verse has often been applied in the matter of charity, of, of uh, generosity. In fact, this is a verse uh, that although many people would not be able to pinpoint where it came from, maybe you to this point, that it comes right here from Ecclesiastes 11, verse 1, but, but a phrase that we find in our own language today, the expression of casting your bread on the waters, usually in the context of, of generosity or the context of uh, venturing something in the face of risk. And that's exactly what it's about. Cast your bread upon the waters, we will find it after many days. Familiar or not, what does it mean? You throw your bread on the water and it comes back to you pretty soggy. Who wants that? But of course, it's not talking literally here about bread. And in fact, it may not even be bread at all. The, the word could also be translated grain. And uh, instead of cast, it could also be translated send. It may be a reference here to commerce or to trade. Send your grain across the ocean for in a number of days. Profit will come back to you or may come back to you. Now, there's risk involved. It's possible the ship may be lost in a storm and, and your grain and all of your work for the year go down with it. But it's also possible that this investment 
this uh, taking of a risk will result in grain being sold, money being made, and profits coming back your way. Not only that, uh, the instruction here is to diversify in your boldness or your investing or in your giving. Verse 2, give a portion to seven or even to eight. That's a formula that we often find uh, later in Proverbs or even earlier in it. You think there are six things that the Lord hates, even seven. Our VBS kids know that song. Uh, what's the point? Well, the emphasis is on the number. The latter number is the one that carries the weight. Six things, yes, or even seven things. It's really the seven that's the, the key number here. Well, give a portion of seven or even to eight. Why? Because you don't know what disaster may come. Now, if you're wise, you practice that in investments. You don't, as our expression puts it, uh, put all your eggs in one basket. The basket falls, they all break. So you spread it out. Minimize your risk. The risk is there, but you do what you can to address it, to minimize its possible effects. And so the boldness of, of acting in, in spite of risks, of diversifying effort, and then also in verse 3, while recognizing, at least humanly speaking, the reality of the inevitable, again, from a human point of view, the random things that might happen that you have no control over. Look at verse 3. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. We hope these clouds are full of rain. We'll see. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. What's it talking about? Well, when it refers to north or south, it's basically saying in any direction it could fall. What it's saying is when a tree falls, it's going to fall in some direction. And once it falls, that's where it lies. It doesn't decide it doesn't like pointing north and and flips over and goes to the south. It happens, and that's the outcome. The tree is lying there in whatever direction it has fallen. Uh, The element of randomness, of not knowing what could happen. And together... These, the first part of the verse, the second part of the verse, the rain, the tree, indicate that some things in life are inevitable, probably beyond death and taxes, as someone has said, and things happen over which we have no control. Now, biblically, Christianly, we know that God is sovereign, but we, as we'll see in just a little bit, we don't always know what that means for us as we make a decision, as we set out on a given course of action. We don't know. And so there's this element of what is inevitable. Uh, We say that's the way the cookie crumbles. That's the way the tree has fallen. And sometimes despite all the care we take, things may go wrong. Better not to act, right? Better not take a risk, right? Wrong. Look at verse 4. He who observes the wind will not sow. And he who regards the clouds will not reap. What's it saying? Well, it's saying in spite of the risk, in spite of the realities of the inevitable and the random, the person who sits around, the farmer, for example, who looks at the sky, who judges the wind, looks at the sky, waiting for the ideal conditions, will never plant his crop. To apply it more broadly, it's saying that if we sit around waiting until everything is optimal, until everything is in the right place, until everything is exactly the way we want it, we may never get anything done. We may never make any decision. We may never move forward because we're so fearful that things are not exactly right that we never take any action at all. Avoid loss, maybe. But also avoid perhaps 
profit financially or in other ways, avoid enjoyment, avoid joy, avoid accomplishment that otherwise in God's providence might have been. What are some of the winds? What are some of the clouds that we look at that deter us? I'm too busy. I'm too old. I don't have enough money. I got too much money, too much at stake, too much to lose. All of these things are some of the winds and certainly many others that may come to your minds. Winds and clouds that we observe that keep us from sowing, that keep us from reaping. One who waits for ideal conditions will never act because it's extremely rare that conditions are always right. We have children before we can really afford them. We get married not knowing how we're going to make it financially. Now, obviously, prudence is called for, but it's also possible to be overly cautious. And one attitude that is pointed to that the preacher refers us to in Ecclesiastes is that those who live life wholeheartedly are willing to be bold in the face of risk. They do what they can to manage the risk, recognizing it's there. They do act. Second attitude that we find here in this passage, trust in the face of uncertainty. Trust in the face of uncertainty. Look at verse 5. As you do not know the way, the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Now, you may be looking at a different translation, and it says something else. The American Standard, uh, for instance. Uh, And it might help to know that in the ESV, the word translated spirit Uh, is a word that can also be translated wind. In Hebrew, the word for either one is ruach, R-U-A-C-H, something like that. Uh, That can refer to the wind blowing. It can also refer to the spirit, the spirit of a person, spirit of God. Uh, Interestingly, it's the same in in Greek also, pneuma, like a pneumatic tire, uh, is the word for the wind, the word for spirit, word for breath. Uh, same word. But in Hebrew, the question in translating, is it referring to the spirit coming to the child? In other words, how does, how does this child, well, it really gets into a, a very metaphysically deep question, the relationship of the body and the spirit or soul of the child. It could also be talking about two different things here. You don't know how the wind blows or where it comes from, which is very reminiscent of what Jesus says to Nicodemus, right, in John chapter 3. And you don't know how God puts together the child in in the womb of its mother. Psalm 139, fearfully and wonderfully made. Either way, the point is the same. There are things that happen that we don't understand, that we don't know how God is working where we don't know what God has in mind, where we don't know what God's purposes are for our life or for our circumstances now or in the future. So you do not know the work of God who makes everything. There's a lot of things that we don't understand about this world, about ourselves, and certainly about God and what he's doing in the world. However, what we do have to do is trust Just as we don't know how these things happen, we don't know the work of God who makes everything. But from the rest of the scriptures, we know, and certainly I hope from our own experience, we know that God is trustworthy. That even though we may not know everything, what we do know, we know certainly. We don't know everything there is to know about God. But what we know, what is revealed to us in scripture, 
we know with certainty. And we know that if we learn something new about him, it's not going to contradict or undo what we already know. We know that God is powerful. We know that God is good. We know that God is wise. And we know from Scripture that God has our best interests as heart, in heart as his children. And that he would never do anything to us that is not ultimately for our good. And so we can trust him even in the face of the uncertainties of life. Even if it turns out that what we did is apparently a mistake. That God is sovereign even over our mistakes. And is able to bring good for us out of them. And from God's point of view and his providence ultimately are no mistake at all. Though we might see it that way. And so boldness in the face of risk, the risk is real, yet we still act. Trust in the face of uncertainty, not knowing what God is doing, not ultimately not knowing what his purposes are. This can be a problem for Christians. You know? I don't know what God's will is. I don't want to offend him. I don't want to do something that's outside his will for me. That's kind of an email theology. You know, we're expecting the email from God. Uh, I did get an email from Jesus once, not too long ago, but it actually was Jesus, and he was the manager of the hotel we were in 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 Cusco, Peru, but it's the only email I've ever gotten signed Jesus, and it probably will be the last one. (laughs) But if you're looking one from Jesus in heaven, uh, I've never gotten one, and sometimes I've had to make decisions just saying, Lord, you know, I've looked at everything. I think I know everything I need to know, and even though there's some degree of uncertainty, you need to move ahead here. And so I'm making this decision, trusting if somehow you have something else in mind, that you will make that clear as we move on here. Uh, Sometimes we have to make a decision in faith, even though God hasn't revealed to us with 100% certainty what it is he wants us to do. Now, having said that, we also should very diligently seek God's will. Because God does direct us. God, either through inner impressions of the Holy Spirit, and you have to be careful there. It, it, it always must be in accordance with what we know from Scripture. Or through the uh, variables of circumstance, does reveal his will to us. And I believe he does very clearly lead us in certain circumstances. But there are other circumstances where we simply have to take the best information that we can gather and looking at everything as biblically as we can and make a decision and act and begin to move forward, trusting that if God has other plans for us, that he will lead us in them. So trust in God, trust in Christ in the face of uncertainty is a very important element in living a wholehearted life. Third, boldness in the face of risk, trust in the face of uncertainty. Third, diligence In the face of what may be a lack of results. Diligence in what may be the lack of results. Look at verse 6. In the morning, sow your seed. And at evening, withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Now, typical Hebrew parallelism here. In the morning, sow your seed. Go out and scatter the seed. Again, an agrarian context here. And in the evening, withhold not your hand, which is simply a Hebrew way of saying scatter the seed again, but but putting it in different words for the sake of variety, just a stylistic thing. But he's saying the same thing. 
Sow the seed morning and evening. Sow this field and that field because you don't know which will prosper. And one may not. Maybe both will, but one more than the other. You don't know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Not knowing the outcome, you were diligent here, you were diligent there, you're diligent today in the morning and in the evening. And again, there's an element of diversification here. Working hard in different areas, not knowing which will prosper. Or working hard at a given thing, even though to this point you have not yet seen success, because you know that far too often a breakthrough never came because someone quit a little too early. Now, morning and evening certainly can apply to the day of a farmer, but it metaphorically can apply to our lives as well. Uh, We do work hard. We are diligent early in life as we're starting out. And you may see some success in different things. You may not. You may have some struggles, some failures, some setbacks. But also toward the evening of our lives, we continue to be diligent. We continue to work hard. The whole idea of retirement uh, as something where we have stored up enough money to sustain us until what we think will be the end of our lives Simply to sit back and uh, wear out the rocker on the front porch is a very unbiblical idea. Uh, I think certainly in a financial position, being uh, able to quit one's job or one's dependence on a paycheck uh, is a beautiful thing. But not in order to sit and soak, but in order to open up new opportunities. The evening of life is often a great opportunity. Some different things that a person could do when uh, they no longer necessarily have to work for a living. Uh, get involved in missions. What an opportunity, the maturity of one's life, to devote some years to the service of Christ in missions. Start a business, maybe start over, start something new. Begin exercising, it's never too late. Write a book. I recently read, I was taking my own advice, not writing, but reading a book on uh, John Murray, the theologian at Westminster Seminary for so many years. Someone asked him why he didn't write books earlier on, early on in his life, and he said, because when I got older, I didn't want to have to take back anything. Well, if you're in retirement or later on in life, maybe you've lived long enough to know what you think and know what the truth is, and you don't have to take back anything, write a book. Learn a language. Learn New Testament Greek. Oswald Sanders describes Benjamin Ryrie, a missionary with China Inland Mission, and he retired from China Inland Mission at the age of 70. When he was 80, he decided he wanted to learn to read the New Testament as Paul wrote it in Greek and other writers wrote it in Greek. And so he began working on New Testament Greek in his 80s. He became proficient at 90. He attended a seminary class in Greek just as a refresher. And on into his 90s, he was known to have a Greek lexicon with him, well-worn, that he would refer to uh, when he had the opportunity to work on his vocabulary. A great way to keep the brain in shape, by the way. Of course, Greek may not be your thing. Hebrew's fun, too. (laughs) Highly commended. Some people fail to have a breakthrough because they just quit too soon. And that's what this verse is talking about. Diligence, perseverance, even when results may not be immediately forthcoming. And you can think of all kinds of examples you've heard of Edison and others who finally got the success they wanted, finally had the breakthrough, finally achieved what they were looking for due to diligence, due to perseverance. And that's what verse 6 is describing here. 
sowing the seed in the morning and in the evening, not giving up, but uh, withholding not your hand, continuing to work, continuing to press forward. Another attitude here, we've seen boldness in the face of risk, trust in the face of uncertainty, diligence when results seem not to be coming forth. Uh, then a fourth, optimism in the face of life, verses 7 and 8. Now I'll confess to you that I'm not by nature an optimistic person. I want to be. I love those who are. But I really, you know, when I would describe the glass as half empty and probably a leak in it, too often that tends to be me. And that, I confess to you, is a sin. Because we serve a good and sovereign God. And for him the glass is full and overflowing. Nevertheless, uh, for many of us, I think, whether through temperament, whether through experience, uh, we tend to become pessimists. But 7 and 8 call us to a certain optimism as we look at life. Look at verse 7. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. What that is is an affirmation of life. Light is sweet. It's a great thing to look out and see a beautiful sunset, or even to look out and see a beautiful sunrise. But what he's talking about here, and you see this in the context of the book as a whole, is a contrast with darkness, the darkness of death, the darkness of not being a part of this world and all that goes on in it. Yes, there are a lot of terrible things that happen that happen in the world that may happen to us. But this is an affirmation of the benefit, of the joy of simply being alive, of being able to participate in this world in its ups and in its downs. Now, there's a realism here. There will be dark days. Verse 8, so if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. And typically, he concludes, all that comes is vanity. And yet in God's providence, it's not. It's not meaningless. It's not pointless. Yes, there will be dark days throughout your life, in youth, middle age, and old age. But life, nevertheless, is a blessing from God and is a delight simply to be able to participate in. And so rejoice in them. Life itself is sweet despite the difficulties. So the boldness, trust, diligence, optimism, but the fifth attitude that he mentions here is joy itself. Joy in the face of affliction. Look at verses 9 and 10. And these are addressed particularly to the young, but they apply to us all. Verse 9, rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. You know, it's often said that youth is wasted on the young. We don't really appreciate it until it's gone. And there's something to be said for that. But for you young people, you need to rejoice in where you are right now. Think, oh, if I could just get out of school. Well, most adults around you are thinking, oh, if I could just go back to school. You know, those, those summer vacations, the Christmas breaks, there's a lot to enjoy there. Um, walk in the ways of your heart, the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into Judgment. So enjoy youth, enjoy the energy, the opportunities, the fun. But remember that you will be held accountable. Remember that you do answer to God. That provides a check that enjoyment does not go across into what is illicit, into what is wrong, into what is sinful, into what is offensive to God and harmful to you. Remember that we do give an account. And there's more on that to words addressed to the youth, as we'll see uh, Lord willing, in chapter 12. But what about those of us who are not 
really what we would describe as our youth anymore. Still very close to it, of course, but a little bit maybe getting past it. Uh, Robert Raines, poet, uh, has a, a, a poem called Middle-Agers Are Beautiful. Middle-Agers are beautiful, aren't we, Lord? I feel for us, too radical for our parents, too reactionary for our kids. Supposedly in the prime of life, like prime rib, everybody eating off me, devouring me, nobody thanking me, appreciating me, but still hanging in there, communicating with my parents, in touch with my kids, and getting more in touch with myself, and that's all good. Thanks for making it good, Lord. And could you make it a little better? Middle age. And old age, too. If God gives us uh, to live that long, to be around for that long. But regardless of youth, middle age, old age, as followers of Christ, we have much to rejoice in, despite the afflictions of life despite the difficulties of that particular stage of life in which we might find ourselves. And so in verse 10, he says, Remove vexation from your heart, put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. In other words, with his typical uh, gloom, saying, well, enjoy youth, but remember the days are coming when it's gone. But certainly from the, the context of the Bible as a whole, we would have to say, well, every stage of life is a gift from God. And whatever its difficulties, we will enjoy it and we will serve the Lord in it and give thanks to him for it. So the half-hearted life or the whole-hearted life, timidity or boldness, twilight or daylight, dull or exciting. You need to remember neither this text nor this sermon is a call to foolishness, a call to leave wisdom behind, but it is a call to live life. A call not to be cowed into submission by fear, by pessimism, even by temperament. The Apostle Paul wrote, So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And of all people, Christians are to live life to the full. We are the ones who serve a good and powerful and wise God. We trust in Christ. We search his word. We seek his will. And then we go for it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we do serve a gracious and loving God, a faithful Heavenly Father. And Father, we pray for forgiveness when we do live as though you weren't there, or we do live as though you were not for us. Forgive us our fear. Forgive us, Father, when for this reason or that we fail to live boldly and fail to live boldly for you. Forgive me. Forgive us. But, Lord, we do pray that as we grow in our knowledge of your word, as we grow in our confidence in your goodness, and as we grow in wisdom, as we look at life around us, that you would give us grace to live lives that are full, to live with all our might while you give us life on this earth for our joy and for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.